With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. Our Twitter poll today, should gay men be allowed to use taxpayer dollars for surrogate IVF in vitro fertilization. I would say no to that. You can vote in the Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Vote counts the same uh, if you don't like Twitter, although Twitter may be changing here, so we'll have to keep an eye on that. I want to welcome Cherise Trump, who's executive director of Speech First, a nonprofit organization that specializes in defending free speech on college campuses. And since I'm reasonably sure that she's sick to death of the question, no, she's not related. But Cherise, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me back. Unique last name. You don't find it very often. And of course, people are going to ask, but... (laughs) Listen, it is the job of American colleges to teach kids. But these days, not just these days, probably for the last 20 years, they've turned into kind of liberal indoctrination centers. So how do we go about getting those colleges to keep their noses out of things where they actually actively encourage censorship and suppression of conservative views on campus? Yeah, yeah, it's really important to uh, draw attention to some of the policies on campus that a lot of folks may not be aware of. So we obviously we see a lot of times, you know, controversial speakers getting canceled or protests or, you know, student presentations getting shut down. And we hear from conservative students on campus that they are concerned about their grades in classes where they have like these Marxist professors. Um, but there's also some bigger threats that are there that are systematic in the university's uh, policy books. And it's enforced by the administrations, um, such as things like bias reporting systems and bias response teams. And a lot of folks, when you first hear that phrase, you're like, what is a bias reporting system? Like, I've never heard this before. And that's because the universities do a really great job hiding it. But what they really are is a bureaucratic apparatus on the campus that specifically solicits reports from students on one another anonymously for various incidents on bias. So they're telling students to look out on each other, to look over their shoulders, and to say, like, anytime you have a fellow student who descends from, the, you know, our woke dogma, or anytime you see a student, like, offend you with their political position or say something that you don't like or joke about something you don't, you don't appreciate, you can report them back to the administration on campus anonymously. So you don't have to worry about the student ever finding out who you are. And then they, don't, they go through the whole process of having to get investigated for whatever it is that they said. They have to be called into the dean's office. They'll sometimes get mandated diversity training. So there's a whole disciplinary apparatus attached to this. And so a lot of folks don't really realize it's happening. And students oftentimes don't realize that it's actually against their constitutional rights. 
Well, I, I was going to say, Cherise, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I don't know if you're a lawyer or not, but but I mean, as a journalist, I've had to deal with you know issues of, of chilling free speech. I mean, the classic example mm -hmm. back in the day would have been if you were in a newsroom in a small town and every time you wrote a negative story about the mayor or the city council, that the local police would come down and say, we're going to have a chat with your general manager. And they couldn't actually do anything. They can't arrest you for that. But if every time you wrote a tough story, uh, you know, the, your, your boss got, you know, got called in to talk to the cops and you got called in to talk to your boss, that would have what the courts have said is a chilling effect. Right. Well, to the extent that these are, and here we have to talk, we have to differentiate between private institutions like Harvard and state institutions like most of the colleges and universities in, in America. Those state institutions are forbidden to chill free speech. And yet, what would be more chilling than getting called into the dean's office and told, well, somebody heard you make a comment and they decided that that was a racist comment and you are now here to try to, you know, I guess, show cause why we shouldn't kick you out of school or discipline you. It sounds like all of your due process rights go right out the window. You mm -hmm. have no right to confront your accusers, see the evidence, the habeas corpus, the evidence against you. Uh, you don't have any right to that, but you do face the possibility of punishment up to and including being thrown off campus, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, bias reporting systems have been harshly criticized in higher court. And we actually have won on a number of cases at the appellate level in the 5th, 6th, and 11th circuits. So the courts recognize the unconstitutionality of these policies. The issue is that the university, a lot of universities are getting away with it. Like you mentioned, private universities are much less beholden um, to the Constitution than public universities are. Public universities are taxpayer-funded, and therefore they are extensions of the state. So the state cannot enforce these policies against you, which you know you would think actually would bar them from having these policies, but they still do it anyway. So it's a matter of like, uh, you know, organizations like ours coming in and saying, no, these are absolutely unconstitutional, that you can't enforce these against students. But oftentimes, students aren't aware of the policy until they're enforced against them or until they hear about their friends getting reported. And at that point, the student doesn't really know what the next step is. And they can reach out to organizations like ours, like legal organizations. But most of the time, when you get an email from your dean that says, hey, you need to come in because you've been reported for something, your first instinct as a student is to be like, oh, shoot, I don't want to get in trouble. I better go in and talk to them. But right. you know what, what the instinct should be is, hey, is this an optional meeting? I'm not coming in unless you tell me what this is for. You know, asking questions and pushing back on the administrators. But the administrators have run roughshod on students for so many years now, they are just so used to students not pushing back against their policies. And they, that's why they hide them in their harassment policies. They know that they're convoluted and difficult to understand. They know students don't read the fine print and that they don't like, necessarily know what their legal rights are. So this is something that we encourage, obviously, parents and students to think very seriously about before they start applying to colleges. Does your campus have a bias response team or a bias reporting system? If so, look into it and see what it looks like. I'm talking to Cherise Trump, who's executive director of Speech First. In fact, before I go any further, where can people find you online? Because I often get emails later on saying, hey, mm -hmm. how do I get a hold of that group? How do they get a hold of you? Yeah, certainly. You can find us at speechfirst.org, and you can join as a member to get regular updates. You can always click donate if you like what you've heard and you want to you know, help support us in our endeavor to educate students. Um, you can find us on Twitter as well, speech-first. Uh, speech and you can also find us on other social media accounts as well. 
Okay, so Cherise, when you talk about winning victories, do you ever get a campus that says the very existence of, in the one case, just Knight's response team, biased response teams, Mm -hmm. that they're not allowed at all because all of their activities run roughshod over constitutional rights at a state institution, in this case, the University of Central Florida. Do the colleges ever admit, you're right, we're not allowed to do this at all, we'll shut the whole thing down? You would certainly think that they, they, they would acknowledge this, but they actually usually come to the defense of the policies. They, and I think a big part of it has to do with the fact that they've been enforcing these policies against their students. So they feel obligated to defend the policy. But, you know, oftentimes the university will defend it all the way up to the circuit level. And it won't be until, you know, the certain UCS case, actually, they even tried to appeal the 11th Circuit decision by getting what's called an en banc decision where they wanted the entire 11th circuit to come together <laughs> and actually make a decision because they just didn't want to like let it go um and so <laughs> this is something that you know we've seen time and time again universities do stand by these policies and i think that's a huge indicator of what the ultimate goal is here the ultimate goal is that these dei offices which oftentimes the bias response teams are run out of um yep. have they, they have a lot of money they need they needed something to do and part of what they are going to do is track students identify the ones that go against their mission and they're going to, you know, punish them for dissenting against their messaging. Doesn't make any sense. That's Cherise Trump with Speech First. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll be glad to get to your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Let me put one update in. About 20 minutes ago, I said that out of Texas at a school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, uh, that they listed two dead and 14 wounded. We now know that 14 children have died and one teacher has died. Those numbers were updated literally within minutes of when we made that announcement. But we want you to know Uvalde, Texas, at an elementary school, 14 children dead, one teacher dead in a shooting at the school and the killer or accused killer is now in police custody. We'll get you updates as they're available. Glad to have you with me. And if you want to join in by calling, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. There are so many strange things happening in this country right now. Consider this question. Should a campus coffee shop at a university be closed down simply because the owner of that coffee shop is pro-police? Now, Ethan Blevins is a good friend of the show. He's an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, and he joins me now. Ethan, I don't think the world can get much stranger than it is right now, but what's going on on the campus of uh, its Boise State University? Yes, thanks for having me. So Sarah Fendley is the owner of Big City Coffee, which is a popular coffee spot in Boise, and she opened up an on-campus location. Um and shortly thereafter, the administration canceled the contract. She had put you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and many, many hours into getting this going because a uh, vocal minority of students didn't like the fact that she supported local police. She had a thin blue line emblem on the door of her off-campus location. She has a fiancé who was injured in the line of duty, a paralyzed police officer. And so it's a passion she has. It's not a radical position, but it was enough for the administration that of this local minority of students opposed it, and so they canceled the contract. Now, Ethan, you're an attorney. I'm not. But 
Is somebody who's a, who signs on to a contract, are they allowed to just unilaterally change the contract that way and cancel it and say you're no longer welcome for any reason? No. Um, and even if you're a, I mean, even, even this were a private contract, you need to have a breach of contract likely. I and mean, there, there are terms for exiting a contract that you have to abide by. But it's even worse when it's the government because the government is also bound by constitutional limits like the freedom of speech. Well, and so in the case of Boise State University, because it's a state institution, they're even more constrained by the Constitution because if the government, if a government entity like Boise State says we're canceling your contract because of your free speech and not free speech that endangers lives uh, or provokes riots or anything like that, but just free speech as in supporting the police, they're even more constrained. They must be aware of this at Boise State, aren't they? I think they are, which is why they're trying to take this line that she voluntarily canceled. <clears throat> and it was a closed-door meeting. She was sort of, um, this was sprung on her suddenly. There were attorneys present that she wasn't warned about. She wasn't given an opportunity to have an attorney there. And what she claims is the university said, we need to part ways. Um, and then the university all of a sudden is claiming that she just voluntary, but voluntarily backed out, probably because they know they can't cancel her contract because of her speech. So, in other words, they bully her in a way that, again, would be the government trying to curb free speech. So either. And, and did she ever sign a piece of paper and say, OK, I'll, I'll voluntarily, you know, cancel my end of the contract since you want to cancel your end? Did she ever do that? She did not. No. So it's it's not a situation where there was any visible voluntariness. And it's uh, she had no why would she cancel a contract that she dumped hundreds of thousands of dollars into? It makes no sense unless the university had forced her out. Well, uh, unless they forced her out or even I could even see if the university said your presence on campus is so offensive to our teachers, to our students and everybody else. You put a bunch of money in. We'll agree to pay you back all that money for your lost opportunity, your opportunity time, the, the dollars you've actually poured into satisfying your end of the contract. If we agree to pay you that, will you let us out of our end of the contract? But I can't imagine anybody saying, oh, yeah, I'll simply forfeit all the money I've spent and let you unilaterally cancel the contract. Who would do that? Right. No one. No one would, which I think I think is going to be clear to the court. I think that this is just a pretext for retaliating against her because they happen to not like the stance she took about supporting police. And so in this case, the judge has decided to let the free speech lawsuit go forward. Did he really have? Any, did the judge really have, I'm sorry, it's a young lady, it's Cynthia Yee Wallace. Did the, young, did the j- lady judge have any way to, to say you can't proceed with your free speech lawsuit against a state university that takes this kind of action? No, I, I think it was pretty clear it should be allowed to move forward. What the, what the government really had done was say, hey, look, she hasn't put forward enough um, facts in her complaint to make a First Amendment claim. And that just really was silly on its face. Uh, but, you know, we, we live in an era where you can never know quite what to expect from courts. So it is an important win that she's able to move forward 
Um, of course, it's not a final ruling, so we'll see what happens. But it's an important victory for free speech, just that she's able to move forward at all. Well, let me ask you this. How, how firm is the evidence that you can talk about, at least since you're representing this case? How, how firm is the evidence that this is the reason they canceled? Not because she reneged on the contract in some other way, but they were saying, we want to cancel because of your pro-police stance. Uh, do you have some pretty good either email exchanges or text message exchanges? What do you have in the way of proof for that? So I should clarify, I uh, n- neither myself nor PLF oh. directly represents an assembly, but we're um, we're we're certainly in support of, uh, in support of her. So really, all um, we've seen, we've had conversations with their attorneys, but all, all we're aware of really are the allegations and the complaint, much of which is not denied by the university. It's just what happened behind closed doors that is really in dispute. But again, it makes no sense for her to go in all, to go all in on this and then have a mystery meeting with attorneys present um, and all of a sudden come out and just cancel. Well, and and is there any other excuse the university can hang its hat on? Say, well, we were really concerned about something else, and that's really the reason we canceled. Do, do they have anything like that? Um, they don't really have anything like that. What they do seem to say is, well, even if we had exited this um, ourselves uh, because of her expression, we have a right to sort of curate the um, viewpoints that are on campus in order to minimize disruption or what happens. Do they have that right, do you think, under the First Amendment? No, definitely not, nor is there any indication whatsoever that this is disruptive. I mean, all of the expression she engaged in wasn't even on campus. So uh, to claim that, you know, this is going to cause, you know, um, rioting at school or disrupt students from learning, uh, all of that is just bogus. Sounds like a lot of uh, hanging paper and trying to find the right excuse, says Ethan Blevins. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I want to get back to your phone calls and emails in just a moment. But uh, there's an important issue I want you to be aware of. And Terry Schilling, who is the president of the American Principles Project, joins me now. Terry, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Lars. Love coming on and talking with you. Well, tell me about this. The Biden administration has a plan, and they have lots of plans. Most of them don't seem to work out all that well, like leaving Afghanistan or guarding the border, things like that. Now they have a plan to overhaul the way that schools respond to sexual misconduct complaints, and they want to extend federal protection to some of the most vulnerable students. Now that all sounds good on paper. Tell me how it's actually going to work out or likely to work out. So what the Biden administration is going to be doing is changing the regulations when it comes to uh, sexual misconduct complaints. What they're going to be doing there is essentially removing due process. So they're going to make it easier for frivolous uh, complaints being made against our sons um, and daughters, for that matter. Um, And they're going to be taking away their due process rights and essentially establishing a system of guilty until proven innocent. Uh, Under the Trump administration, they got rid of a lot of these regulations that Obama had taken into consideration. Now, before I go on to the changes that they're making to Title IX, Lars, I just want to be very clear. Democrats and these woke progressives really don't care about sexual assault. And you don't need to look very far. You only need to go to Loudoun County, Virginia, where a young woman was raped in the bathroom by a guy in a dress in the women's bathroom. 
Um, yep. They moved that kid, they covered it up, and then they moved that boy to another school where he sexually assaulted another 14-year-old girl. These people don't care about this. Um, I just think it's important to point that out. This is all a farce. Um, and and this is when it comes to Title IX. Yeah, this is going to be most, is this both K-12 and college, or is the bigger concern in K-12 education? No, this is everything. This is K-12 and, and, and higher education. This is Title IX as the Department of Education um, is going to interpret the law, and that affects everywhere that's receiving federal dollars. So if you're taking federal money, it applies to you, and the vast majority of our colleges accept federal money. Now, you said that this, this goes beyond that uh, concern, because clearly the Biden administration wants to side with transgender, LGBTQ, and all that, but they're going to do it at the expense of not only victimizing some people, uh, assaults that will happen uh, because of what, you know, the case in Loudoun County is one I cite all the time, where the school literally covered up what the student had done before and allowed him, pretending to be a girl, uh, to do it again. But it's also going to, it's, it's going to pose a threat, uh, as you said, to young men who are going to be accused of things they didn't do and they're not going to get uh, they're not going to get due process. That's exactly right. Um, and 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 Lars, just to go back to Loudoun County, they the Department of Justice and the Department of Education conspired to investigate the parents who were upset about this sexual assault that were showing up at their school board meeting upset and and and, and rightfully yelling at these school board. Uh, officials for covering up. They invested them under the Homeland Security Act. They investigated them as domestic terrorists. They don't care about sexual assault. They care about protecting their special interest groups. So when you when it's a sexual assault from a transgender person, they're going to favor the transgender person over the girl uh, because that's more important. And transgender rights always trump women's rights, which gets to the changes that they're making in Title IX. This would reinterpret protections on the basis of sex to mean gender identity. And so how does, what, how does that affect us? Well, that means that boys who identify as girls are going to be able to go into our daughter's locker rooms, into their showers, into their bathrooms, and also, and this seems like a small thing, into our daughter's sports. This sets up a clash, Lars, uh, between the states who are pushing back against all this nonsense and the federal government. It's not the way to unite this country. I'm talking to Terry Schilling, who's the president of the American Principles Project. And Terry, I've been warning people for several years now, saying, are you ready to sit down and have a conversation with your daughter or your granddaughter and say, I know you had planned to be a golfer or a tennis player or any of these other sports and maybe even be good enough to pay for your college education through a scholarship. You better just pretty much put those dreams aside because you're going to be beat by biological males. And if you're not ready to have that conversation, you need to show up at the school board and demand that the rules not be written that way. You think I'm, I'm off base in, in suggesting that to people? No, I think you're mostly on track, Lars. I just I think that what we've seen, what, what America has done really, really well in the past two years is we've been showing up at the school board meetings. We've been pushing back. But those school board officials aren't listening to us. So we have to unelect the vast majority of them. There are 13,000 school districts across the country, and there are over 93,000 school board seats. 
a good portion of those seats go unchallenged and unfilled. That needs to change. So you don't just need to show up at your school board meeting. You have to run for office yourself. I mean, so many people ask me, what do I do? How do I fight back? How do I get engaged? You get engaged by running. You get engaged by finding someone to run. And, and we often just take this for granted and we show up at the meetings only and then go home. You have to actually put your name out there because if you don't do it, no one will. No, and by the way, Terry, I can say that for 25 years on this show, uh, I've had people calling saying, well, how do I get involved? I said, run for school board. And they kind of sneer like, oh, no, I want to run for Congress or the legislature or, or governor. And I say, no, no, run for the school board. You become one vote in five or one vote in seven, depending on the school board, on literally tens of billions of dollars and some of the most consequential government activity you can ever imagine. And, and I think a lot of people have never thought of it that way, but I've, I've been banging on that drum for basically a quarter of a century, saying, run for that job. You may find it more consequential than being one of 90 in the state legislature uh, or, or maybe one of 435 in the House of Representatives. Which one do you think is more consequential? Well, I think you're exactly right. Although I will say that these states and the federal government control so much money now that they have such an outside influence on, I'm sorry, outsized influence on what these school boards do. A lot of the reasons why these school board officials aren't making any changes is because they're worried that if they do, they will lose out on millions of dollars that they are counting on at the local level. Now, to you and I, who are principled, that, you know, we would make that call and we'd figure out how to raise the money elsewhere, or we'd make right. the cuts to the administrators, right? I mean, that's what we don't talk about really is 50% of school budgets across the country are just administration, right? They're just people filling out grant requests and all this other garbage federal guidelines. You can do a lot by downsizing the federal government and the role there. Um, exponentially, you do a lot. Well, and in fact, Terry, I've told people one of the colleges I admire the most, I've never even set foot on the campus, is Hillsdale. Because way back when, Hillsdale said, we're not going to let the federal government tell us what to do. Uh, this was even in the 70s, because they said the federal government wants to come in and tell us we have to give degrees to black Americans and female Americans. And they said, we've been giving degrees to black Americans and female Americans since before the Civil War. We're not going to be told how to do it, because we were doing it back when the federal government was still actively discriminating against people based on gender and based on skin color. So they said, we won't take a single dime. In fact, if a student comes to us with a Pell Grant for two grand, we'll find a way to raise the money so we don't take one thin dime from the federal government. And that way, when the federal government comes to us and tells us what to do, we can say, go pound sand. We are immune to your nonsense. We don't take your money and we never will. Terry Schilling is the president of the American Principles Project. Terry, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Parents, you got to know what's happening to your sons and your daughters. We'll be back in just a moment. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Naysayers go first at 866-439-5277. You've got the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and it's the holidays, which means I want to give you the opportunity to do something nice for people who don't have as much as maybe you and I have. And we can do that through one of our great affiliates, that's KVI in Seattle. Uh, we'll mention this a couple of times, but KVI.com is the place to donate, or you can call and donate money at 206-217-1237. And it goes to a charity that I've been associated with for decades 
decades because I've always admired the work of the Salvation Army and not to diminish Major Jonathan Harvey, but I'll tell you something. I'm not going to ask him what he makes, but the people at the Salvation Army do it out of faith. They do it out of love for their community and they don't get the big paychecks that an awful lot of people get at other major name brand charities. Major Harvey, welcome to the program and uh, Merry Christmas in advance. Thank you and Merry Christmas to you too also. I hope I didn't embarrass you by saying that, but I think sometimes people hear about major charities and they say, well, does the money go to the kids? Does it go to the families that need it? The Salvation Army has figured out how to maximize everything that goes to the people who actually need it. Would you mind describing a bit of the Salvation Army's mission and then we'll get to the way that people can help out this holiday? Absolutely. We're about loving people beyond their current circumstances. We love to do that. We love to serve We love to be a part of our community and make sure that every person has the opportunity to receive the support, the help, the direction, the encouragement, the services that they need for a brighter future. And over half a million people over the last year or so have received that kind of help throughout the Northwest. So that's our business. That's what we're trying to do. Uh, And thank you for being a part of helping make that happen. Listen, I've been glad to do that, but I want you to talk about what this does. I mean, the money is one thing. People do have to pay the rent. They've got to pay the heat bills, and that's tough these days. But I want kids, I want every kid, whether it's Christmas or Hanukkah or any other, I want every one of those kids to wake up with some toys on one of the mornings here in December. Can you talk about the importance of your Toys for Kids program that you're doing in cooperation with KVI? certainly can. You know, I, I recently heard that, that a, a gift under the tree for a child in a family that, that doesn't have the means to do that can actually change the trajectory of a child's life uh, for the future. The, the point of that is that, that, uh, that a child, when they receive a gift from someone that doesn't even know them, it communicates something to them. It says someone cared. Someone cared enough about me to do something for me, even though they didn't know me. And that can have a profound impact. We had an individual just yesterday that was volunteering at our center, an adult, uh, and, and he, as a child, received assistance through the Salvation Army from his, uh, by his parents, obviously, and, and received gifts under the tree because his parents were helped by the Salvation Army. And, and he said that meant so much to him that when he heard about the opportunity to come volunteer and be a part of helping provide toys for children this Christmas, he had to be a part of it. So it, it can have a profound impact on a child. And that's really what we're trying to do. As many children as possible, and it's going to be literally thousands throughout the region, as many children as possible, making sure when they wake up on Christmas morning, there's a gift under the tree and they know that someone loved them. I'm glad to know that you're listening on the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to Major Jonathan Harvey. He's the General Secretary for the Northwest Division of the Salvation Army. And I can't say enough good things about my association with the Salvation Army, not because of me, but because I admire what this organization does. I mean, it works on behalf of the poor. It works on behalf of people who are beset by problems like alcoholism and drug addiction and things like that. And at this holiday time, it's important to help those families and also make sure the kids have a toy under the tree or wherever they might find the toy on that morning. You can donate toys online via Amazon or donate money directly to the Salvation Army. You can find the links to do that kvi.com. That's our Seattle affiliate. That's kvi, King Victor, Idaho.com. Or you can call 206-217-1237. So Major Harvey, what are the other things that you're doing for people this holiday season as part of the Salvation Army's mission and your position as General Secretary for the entire Northwest? 
Well, the, the, the list is endless, to be frank with you. We're making sure that people get housed. By the time everybody eats lunch today, the Salvation Army will have housed one or two individuals. By the time they go home tonight, that number could have increased by one to two people again because our outreach programs, our shelter programs, all the different activities that we're doing throughout the region are ensuring that people get into permanent housing. We're making sure that people get fed. We're ensuring that children have a safe place to go to after school every day. The the list literally goes on, Lars. I mean, there are so many different programs that we're doing that is really trying to approach homelessness, food insecurity, and character-building elements for children. We're trying to approach things from every direction possible so people have the opportunity for success, to love them beyond their current circumstances. Now, it means something to me, Major Harvey, and it probably means something to a lot of the people who listen to my show. You do this as a faith-based mission, don't you? We do. You know, we, we, we love God, and we have a, a Christian mission, um, and that's what motivates us. It actually doesn't hold us back from doing anything, and nothing is required of anybody. We just love people, and we want to provide that, that, that care and, and uh, attention that, that God would have us provide. And so it's through that lens that we look at everything that we do, uh, and it's with that motivation that we provide the services that we provide. Donate at kvi.com. You can call 206-217-1237. You can donate toys online via Amazon or donate money to the Salvation Army. Major Harvey, have a wonderful and blessed Christmas, and thank you so much for what you and the Salvation Army do for the Pacific Northwest. Thank you. Thank you to you for, for helping us. Thank you to your listeners for supporting us. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network and the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'll get to your phone calls and emails a bit later, but about a year ago, I'm sure that you remember this if you're a conservative. Liberals, I'm not so sure about, but there were some incidents that went on. Loudoun County, Virginia seemed to be ground zero for this where a father showed up at a school board meeting angry and understandably angry because his daughter had been sexually assaulted in a restroom by a transgender student. And he was objecting, and he was objecting loudly, but that's all it was. And then we saw the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland, thank God he never got on the Supreme Court, put out a memo calling parents who dared to stand up to school boards on things like CRT and transgender policy and pronouns and all that, He called them domestic terrorists. So I thought I'd check in with Angela Morabito, who is former press secretary at the U.S. Department of Education under Secretary Betsy DeVos. And I have to say, Angela, welcome to the program. But thank God we had Betsy DeVos even for the short time we had her. I thought she was a gift to the Department of Education. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Lars. It's great to be with you. And even though I'm biased because it was wonderful to work for, I, I can't help but agree. I got to see up close the progress that Secretary DeVos made for students, and it's something I think we, sh- we all can be thankful for. Well, and see, the thing is, I'm one of those guys that actually called for the dissolution of the U.S. Department of of Education. But as long as we have to have it for right now, at least have somebody in there who knows something about the subject and who's dedicated her life to things like charter schools and giving parents some alternatives for education of their children instead of the one-size-fits-all government schools. But are things any better today than they were a year ago when uh, Merrick Garland and the DOJ declared a lot of us who've stood up and, and objected to school boards uh, called us domestic terrorists? I think there has been some incremental progress, and all of it is owed to parents and the groups that support them in going after their school boards, not in some sort of personal attack like the attorney general wanted you to believe, but in support of their 
children and in support of positive change. We're right about at the one-year mark from when the National uh, School Board Association sent that infamous letter to President Biden that smeared concerned parents as domestic terrorists. And as, as you well know, and as I'm sure many of your listeners will remember, the Department of Justice used that letter to justify a memo threatening those concerned parents with the FBI. So as the government has doubled down on some really bad decisions, parents have only gotten louder. The calls to silence them backfired spectacularly. Well, let me ask you this, just so we're clear. Didn't we ultimately find out that the letter generated by the NASB was actually something that the White House had effectively reached out and said, hey, we need a letter from you saying this. And and then when we get the letter, then we'll react to it. And Merrick Garland will pretend he didn't know anything about it. He just read about it in the newspaper and decided to act on his own. I mean, all of this sounds like a, a giant setup. Yeah, there are still a lot of questions surrounding the origins of this letter and a lot of evidence, just like you said, to suggest that the Biden administration had at least something, maybe a very big something, to do with it. Now, here's what we do know is that the White House was in touch with the School Board Association on you know, some sort of matter. We don't have a lot of details there prior to the letter. And there's also an email that was uncovered by a Freedom of Information Act request that referenced Secretary Cardona, the Secretary of Education, soliciting some kind of letter from the school board group. Now, the ad department has come out and denied that it was the letter, but those questions are still there, and I think Americans deserve a real answer from the federal government, an answer which, a year later, we just don't have. Yeah, because I don't like it when people engineer something to make it look as though there's an honest appeal from a private sector organization, although... I don't even know that I can call the National Association of School Boards a private sector because they essentially represent school boards, which in almost all cases are are basically the governing boards of government operations, public schools around the country. And weren't there a lot of states that said we no longer want to have anything to do with this association as a result of this dust up? There were, Lars, uh, 25 of them specifically. So the National School Boards Association has now last, lost half of its state affiliates. But when we think about this, when we zoom out and think about this issue, even outside of this infamous letter and the DOJ's wild memo, uh, we actually see how big this issue is and how much the progressive left has failed to learn from the backlash they got to this letter. This should have been such a clear sign that parents are not forgetting what happened during the COVID lockdown. They are not giving up on school reform. And yet, you have Democrats and people on the left making these same mistakes again and again. Uh, I think about Disney in particular, how they went up against Ron DeSantis' Parental Rights and Education <laughs> Act, calling, calling it the Don't Say Gay Bill. We all remember that name, even though that name was false. They sure did make it stick. And think about the backlash that parents had to that. So every time an organization, whether it's in the government or not, has gone up against parents, it has lost spectacularly. See, I find all this, I mean, my adult kids went to public school. My wife and I both went to public school. Uh, but but this, this is frightening. The idea that the government wants to exert this kind of control over American families. And I always hear school districts and teachers say, oh, we want parents to be involved. Except they want your involvement, essentially pay your taxes, and, 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 and don't 
don't give us your input about how kids are educated. And you get people like Terry McAuliffe who shoots off his mouth and says he didn't get to be governor of Virginia, but he he said uh, parents have no business telling us how we educate your kids. Uh, I thought that was kind of a wake up call for a lot of American parents. How dare you do that? It is. And Lars, I'm a proud public school alum, too, from from uh, here in Georgia. And I can tell you, I don't recall my parents ever having to go before a school board to ask for permission to be the number one authority in, in the lives of their of their children. That wasn't a special favor you had to ask for from the government. Well, now with the teachers unions digging in their heels in so many places, it is. And that's why you see these moms and dads showing up and just asking for really basic things like, hey, please my, teach my child to read, write, and do math. Hey, please do not put wildly inappropriate political or otherwise explicit materials in front of my kindergartner. So this is a conversation that is long overdue, but quite frankly, that we should never have to have. Um, and it's still going on. To, to the earlier point about the, the defenders of the education system just not listening, the teachers unions in New York City last week announced that parent-teacher conferences were only going to be virtual. You had to go ask special permission if you wanted to walk into your child's classroom and speak with their teacher. And that is just an affront to the role of parents in the life of their child. And it sure makes you wonder what that teacher's union is trying to hide in those schools. Yeah, it surely does. Hey, I I understand you're doing well at the Defense of Freedom Institute, and we really appreciate you taking the time, Angela. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lars. I appreciate you. Yes, ma'am. That's Angela Morabito, former press secretary at the U.S. Department of Education under Secretary Betsy DeVos. This, well, this is a free speech zone every single day. And of course, on Fridays, we mark First Amendment Fridays. You're welcome to join us then. We open up the phone lines and everything is fair game. But if you want to jump into the best conversation in talk journalism, it's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show, and of course, tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails in just a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out our Twitter poll. We have it two places, so if you don't like Twitter like me, you can just go to my website at LarsLarson.com. Your vote counts the same. Uh, just at Lars Larson Show or LarsLarson.com. Easy enough to do. And all emails go to me, and naysayers always go to the head of the line. You know, an awful lot of Americans were very, very happy when last week the United States Supreme Court, uh, last week uh, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that New York State was wrong to deny people concealed carry permits to carry a gun, to keep and bear arms, as the Constitution says, Uh, Because the state of New York said, well, we have the right to decide if you have a proper cause for doing that. That turns out to be unconstitutional, thank God. And what it means is that uh, New York and about six other states can join the groups of states that already allow concealed carry, issue a permit if you're legally qualified for it. And then, of course, about a third of America's states have what's called constitutional carry, meaning you don't even need a permit as long as you are not legally prohibited from owning a gun. Now, for a lot of liberals, that's just absolutely terrible news. But I thought we'd talk with Leah Thomas. Uh, Her company is working with International Hunter Education Association to offer up firearm safety courses for Americans all over the country. Ms. Thomas, welcome to the program. Hey, Lars. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. 
You bet. Would you mind telling my audience what IHEA is offering to people? Because I know there are people out there who'd like to know more about firearm safety. And uh, and I think it's a sensible thing to do, even if you decide never to own a gun. 100%. I mean, I think that we should be educating everyone on safe firearms handling just so that we don't end up with those I regret situations that we see sometimes out there in the world. And our courses are designed um, very simply. They're digital. Um, We use the Hunter Education Foundation, which has dramatically improved safe firearms handling in the field for hunters as the course foundation. And we're teaching everything um, from the basics of firearm safety rules to responsibilities to safety in the home, how to safely store and transport firearms, ammunition basics. Uh, If you take, for instance, a pistol course, it'll talk about ensuring that you match your ammo to your pistol. It'll teach you the differences between semi-automatic versus revolvers. And we've even gone so far as to talk about firearm care and cleaning. And a really big one, which I think would help anyone, especially a new firearms owner, which is range etiquette um, and how ranges are operated, because that can be very intimidating, the first-time gun owner. I can tell you that I I, I don't have any shortage of people who call the show and say, boy, when I was in school, they taught firearm safety at school. They allowed you to carry your firearm to, you know, a rifle or a pistol or or a shotgun uh, to school. Uh, We're we're past those days now, sadly, and I I think uh, we're we're not better off for it. I, I wish we would go back to that. Do you think you could get some of the, the, or that IHEA could get some of this into the public schools where the school board or the school administration is willing to look at it? Well, you know, I think there's a strong possibility in some states. There are still a few states like Texas that actually do teach hunter education in the school system. Um, we don't, we haven't worked historically with schools at a national level it's more of a state level as is most handgun rulings like you mentioned your concealed carry laws around the united states but boy it would sure be cool if we could yeah because i can't tell you how many stories i've done over the years where you say somebody was cleaning his gun and had an accident and i thought you know, the, the, that's the one that really makes those of us who, are, who prize the Second Amendment angry because we say, how in the world are you cleaning a loaded gun? You know, because that, that's the first thing you do when you touch any gun is you make sure, uh, you know, of what its status is. Is it full? Is it loaded? Is there one in the chamber? Uh, and before you'd ever clean it, you'd make sure that it was empty and that it was cleared before you ever did anything like that. We could avoid all of those mistakes. And, you know, I think we also, even as firearms owners, sometimes take firearm safety for granted. I think it's a course that anyone can take and brush up. And we all just need to be reminded, I think, on a daily basis that we need to be paying attention if we're carrying to the very basic rules of firearm safety. Very good. Now, if people want to take advantage of this, this is something that's being offered up free of charge by IHEA? It's not free, but it is affordable, Lars. It's $12 for a course. We have three modules. There's a fire, I'm sorry, a shotgun, a handgun, and a rifle course. And they can be found really easily at ffcourse.org. If people wanted to take more than one course, they could take secondary courses for only $9. Yeah, that seems awfully affordable, especially because if you're heading off to the range, you're going to throw that much ammunition down the range in the first five minutes, aren't you? That's for sure. I think I just spent 50 bucks on a box of ammo a few days ago. So 
I can and that one will you, be gone very fast, won't it? <laughs> yes, yeah, it will. But yeah, we tried to make them affordable. Um, you can do them at your own pace. They, you can log into the course for a solid month. So if you're busy and you don't have time to take it all in one sitting, you can take your time and, and do it at your leisure. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Ms. Thomas, thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Lars. I hope you have a terrific day, and we appreciate everything that you do. And you have a terrific day as well. That's Leah Thomas with the group Firearms Fundamentals. Again, the course at ffcourse.org. Let me go to your calls now, and we always start with naysayers. Uh, John is just such a naysayer. Hey, John, welcome to the program. What do you and I disagree about today? Lars, John the Electrician here. 20 years of naysaying on Lars. (laughs) Okay, Uh, go for it. Yeah, well, Lars, uh, you, you often state you, the, how how proudful you are, how proud you are of the fact that you only state fact, you do research, you, it's all about truth. And but the, the problem is is that you've been lying about Jan six since the day it happened, and the big lie on Jan six was that it was Antifa, and it was days after you said it's Antifa. And you've never corrected yourself. So why would anybody want to believe anything that you say? I heard your call with the last gentleman that was on here. Um, and it was not can, here. Can I offer you a piece of evidence? If, well, let me let me finish the first part. And that, okay, because you're going to run yourself out of time, but okay. Well, that's fine. Uh, and then you can talk all you want after that, of course. But but the, the gentleman that was saying how... You said it was hearsay what the what uh, Miss Hutchinson heard, and she heard it from the Secret Service agents. They told her she said this under oath. So this wasn't. I heard this from a person who I think was in. They the didn't room. tell it to she her under there. oath. They had a conversation with her, and she is recounting the conversation. No, so she, she said, was she was she under oath in under front oath. of the Congress. She, but yeah. here's the problem, John. When the folks who are at the center of this, the Secret Service, immediately put out a statement last night saying our agents will come and testify under oath that what the Congress heard, much of what they heard from Cassidy Hutchinson, including the lunge for the steering wheel and all that nonsense, the Secret Service agents who are actually there will testify it didn't happen that way. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. I'm glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. One of the things I brought to your attention is that over the last less than 12 months, there have been a couple of dozen attacks on what are called pregnancy resource centers, and the attacks keep on coming. In fact, there are some places where the local officials, if they're you know liberals and Democrats and progressives, they've literally said, we want to make it illegal for people to operate uh, pregnancy crisis centers, uh, even though all they're really involved in is simply offering information. In other words, they're engaging in what the Constitution calls First Amendment protected free speech. Uh, you're God-given right to free speech, but protected by the Constitution. Well, I wanted to get an update on what's going on with the uh, crisis pregnancy centers around America. Reverend James Harden is the CEO of Compass Care Pregnancy Services, and his centers have come under both physical attack. I don't know if you're under legislative attack yet or not, Reverend Harden, but welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me back, Lars. It's great to be with you. It's kind of amazing to me. I mean, I've been in the news business for almost half a century 
And you'd think this would be a bigger story, that dozens of places around America, pregnancy resource centers or crisis pregnancy centers, have come under physical attack, they've been firebombed, they've been ransacked, they've been vandalized, and yet the mainstream media seems to not care a whole lot about the fact that that's happening. You're exactly right. Um, this is, I've said this before and I'll say it again, it is the pro-abortion crystal knocked. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's the mainstream media refusing to, 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 to send the outcry to the, to the public. It's the political elite refusing to denounce the violence. Oh, and by the way, we are being attacked legislatively now. They've weaponized the legislature in New York against pro-pregnancy centers, and they want to essentially legislate us right out of business. And legislate you by what? By prohibiting free speech? Because that's all you're really engaged in, isn't it? I mean, I, I understand pregnancy resource centers may give out a few diapers, but for the most part, their, their primary purpose is to give young ladies who are pregnant some advice and an alternative to killing the baby. Yes, and you're, you're exactly right. And, you know, we provide ethical medical care, and one of the tenets of ethical medical care, what, what, what makes it ethical, is that women have informed consent, which is a speech function, meaning you educate women about all of their options and specifically about their condition, and, uh, and, and, and that's, that's what they're trying to suppress. They don't want us to talk about what abortion is and does to women and children. And that's what we're all about. We provide abortion information, informed consent. So if a young lady comes to you and says, look, I don't know what to do. I'm pregnant. Uh, I don't have a husband. I don't have a, a father. The father of my baby is not going to stand up and, and do the right thing, whether it's, phys- you know, whether it's financially support or support otherwise a baby. What am I going to do? I need to go get an abortion. And you say, well, you could uh, have the baby and give it up for adoption. You could have the baby and care for it yourself, love it yourself. I mean, there are lots of options. And once she hears those options, you and I have talked about it. You, you, have no, you have no way to compel her to do one thing or another. If you persuade her and she says, I'll keep my baby, good. Yeah, but you've also yep. described to me that you have the experience of young ladies saying, no, I'm going to go ahead and have the abortion anyway, and it's easier. I'll just walk down the road to Planned Parenthood. And you've had some people do that as well. So the options are open to her. She just walks down the road with more information than she had before. Exactly. She, she walks down the road empowered to make a truly informed decision, whereas the abortion industry is not interested in informed decisions. They're interested in the bottom line. And, you know, the, the largest abortion uh, business in the world is Planned Parenthood, and they, they increased their bottom line to uh, last during the COVID years to $139 million. They received $600 million, over a half a billion in taxpayer funding. And, we're, and, and they get all this money from, from, from the government. We don't get anything from the government. And we provide all of our services for free and at no cost to her. Uh, we're, we're actually providing for her unmet health and resource needs like, like no one else does. And uh, what, what do abortionists do? Well, one thing, it's abortion. And how do I know that? Ask, ask why the abortion businesses are closing in the states that made it restricted. Because because the number of abortions is down. So Reverend Harden uh, is the CEO of Compass Care Pregnancy Services. What's the latest attack? And I think people may find this bizarre when you describe what Google and Yelp are doing to uh, to pregnancy resource centers. It is quite bizarre. There is an, an intentional uh, censorship going on of the of disfavored uh, pro life pregnancy centers. So. Um, we, we were attacked not just physically by, by pro-abortion terrorist group on June 7th. We were also attacked online by a negative one-star Google review uh, campaign, uh, propaganda campaign. They, they wiped us off Google 
It's listed us as permanently closed. All of our locations, our, our patient load tanks, women can't find us, so we're not even on the maps. And, uh, and, and we've, we were, we're trying to work with Google. They wouldn't work with us. And then they put us back online at 1.30 in the morning, one hour before we were firebombed on June 7th. That sounds strange to me. But then after that, uh, we, we had uh, Letitia James, New York's, New York's you know, attorney, attorney general. general. Yep. Yeah, she, she came up with an open letter to Google saying, wipe us off the maps. We had 21 federal legislators say, going open letter to Google saying, this allowed them from advertising on Google. Um, and what did Google do? What did Yelp do? With one day apart, they, they did exactly what they were told to do. They wiped us off the maps. And they disallow us uh, from, from they're centering all of our advertising and they're putting warning labels on and additional click through re, uh, requirements for people to actually find us. This is censorship, plain and simple, and it needs to be prosecuted. Interestingly enough, the, the, we have uh, 17 attorneys general that signed another open letter. They're pro-life, though. And they said, Google, if you give in to these demands from these pro-abortion politicians, we're going to investigate you for antitrust uh, concerns. Here's a quote. We cannot, this is, this is from the attorney generals, uh, the pro-life attorney generals. We cannot imagine a potential antitrust violation more odious to American ideals than the deployment of monopoly power to suppress the expression of a particular idea done at the behest of government actors. And by the way, this is all to protect uh, the, 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 the activity and the, and the speech of pro-life pregnancy centers. You know, it's funny, Reverend, over the years, I've told my audience a few times that I've asked prosecutors about this. I said, there are things you're not allowed to do, you know, certain kind of activities, recording people, you know, invading their privacy that a private individual might be able to do. But if you go out and get a private individual to do it on your behalf, aren't they acting as your agent? And sure enough, they tell me, yeah. yeah and we, if anything we're prohibited from doing as a, as a part of government, we can't get another actor to do it on our behalf. If an individual citizen goes out and does it on his own, say so, that's one thing. But we can't go out and say, we can't get away with this. You go out and do it for us, because all they're doing is acting as an agent of the prosecutor. It sounds like that's what Letitia James has done. That's exactly what Letitia James has done and the Biden administration and others. In fact, um, you're, you're probably one of the more informed uh, people I've ever, ever spoken with about this issue, because I just finished reading. And, I, and what you just said, I just finished reading in an August 2nd complaint filed against the Biden administration by the attorney generals in Missouri and Louisiana. And they said just what you said in their complaint, that, that the government is coercing these, these companies uh, to do something uh, for them to censor disfavored people or disfavored ideas from the public square. And the new public square, by the way, is Google and the social media platforms. And people, I, I understand why people, if they say, well, I looked to see if there was one of those centers in my neighborhood, you know, you put in a, a pregnancy resource center near me, and if Google or Yelp or other search engines say, I'm sorry, there's nothing anywhere near you. Closest one is a long ways away. People say, well, it must not exist near me because they assume mm -hmm. it's like looking in the phone book in, in days gone by. If it's not in the phone book, it doesn't exist. Reverend James uh, Harden, keep up the good work. He is the CEO of Compass Care Pregnancy Centers. It's a pleasure to have you on, Reverend. Back in a moment, your calls and naysayer calls as well at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277.
You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network on First Amendment Friday. Our Twitter poll today, should the Biden administration prioritize briefing TikTok stars rather than conventional media in the middle of a war? I would say no to that, although maybe the White House isn't getting the right spin that they need from the alphabet networks and the big newspapers. So yesterday... They gathered together 30 TikTok stars, including a TikTok influencer who's just 18 years of age, and said, we're going to give you a briefing on Ukraine, and then you can influence the people who follow you, which is literally millions of people who follow on TikTok, most of them young. Our Twitter poll can be found at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. and brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Let's go to Scott, who's a naysayer. Hey, Scott, thanks for listening on the Radio Northwest Network. What do you and I disagree about? No problem, Lars. Um, well, we agree on a lot of stuff, but I guess we, what point I wanted to make was about, about your uh, comparison of the Ukraine border with the Mexican border. Yeah. Um, two points on that. Um, one, I mean, the Mexican border is completely different in that um, a lot of the reason those people are coming over here is because of our drug policies. And, you know, we look at a $6 billion payout yesterday from the Sackler family for OxyContin. And I just wonder what your feeling is about that. Uh, you know, we've seen it's legalization. Kind of a bizarre Arizona. comparison, isn't it, Scott? Because I don't know of any Mexican illegal aliens who become pharmaceutical reps for OxyContin or for the, for the Sackler family or anything like that. Scott, here's the way I see, I th- I see it is fairly simple. Okay. Um, is it the job of the United States federal government to secure the borders of the United States? Yes, but the, the, the problem Not yes, is but just just try yes. We're now, buy, is it the job? The, is, we have is a it, demand for the drugs here. Okay, but that's, the, that's not my question. Most of the illegals them. are coming across the border because they hope to work in high-paying American jobs. So they're drawn by economics. They're not allowed to come in illegally just because they want a better-paying job. And you say, well, well I, would, I would counter that. I would counter that, Lars, because I would say a lot of them are just coming over here to be with their families. We are a country, and, and they're independently wealthy, and they don't have to work for a living. Who are these people? Illegal aliens who come across the border who don't have to work in a job? Well, no, they want they want to be a part of the American dream of creating, you know, a strong. Are they allowed to break our laws to do that? No, but unfortunately, okay. a, a large percentage of the ones that do make it over are the illegal ones because they are they're running a large percentage if they come in illegally they're all illegal aliens if they come in legally and we allow a million people plus every year to do that now scott i ask you if it's the job of congress to secure the american border uh did they do that when they voted no on the wall a couple of years ago well our border has always been porous that's not you know scott i love the way you dodge the question but did did they did they safeguard the border or not now congress just voted 13 and a half billion american taxpayer dollars to protect ukraine is it the job of the united states congress to protect ukraine um no not okay then then that's the comparison i was making now has the invasion of ukraine been both deadly and hurt a lot of people yes has the illegal alien invasion of america been deadly and hurt a lot of people mm, no because it's comparing apples and oranges you no i'm just asking no i didn't ask you to compare i said has the illegal alien invasion and the the stats i cited from here in the northwest 
Illegals are 4.5% of Oregon's population, similar percentage in Washington. In Oregon, 18% of the convicted rapists are illegal aliens. 14% of the convicted murderers are illegal aliens. Has the illegal alien invasion been deadly and damaging to America? Uh, I don't know. I can't. You can't compare those numbers. I'm sorry. It just, it I can't say sense. that if illegal aliens come here and rape Americans, that that's damage to Americans. I don't know about you, but I'd call it damaging. Maybe you don't know anybody who's been raped. I do. Um, it's it's just too cut and dry. It's too it's too simple. To yeah, I guess it, you know that stuff tends to be that way, Scott. When you get raped and somebody says, "Hey, w- did did that hurt? <laughs> Was it awful? Has it has it has it perhaps affected you for the rest of your life?" Some people say, no, 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 it was okay, it was fine, didn't, didn't hurt a bit. Come on, Scott, somebody murders a family member of yours, and they're an illegal alien, they aren't even allowed to be here, and you say, yeah, no problem. I mean, I understand why you came here. You came here intending to get a better job and be with your family, and you murdered a member of my family. Yeah, it can't be cut and dried. Really, You're Scott? You're making a point out of pathos. You're just making a point out of empathy. It's not a. It's not a logical. It's not empathy. Part. It's I saying if people, if people are allowed, if somebody allowed, if somebody gave a key to your house to a murderer and they came into your house and murdered a, fem- a member of your family, would you be a little angry at the person who gave them the key? Well, of course, but I mean the Russian. Okay, well, I'm 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 just as angry at Joe Biden for giving. I'm I'm angry at Joe Biden for giving three million illegal aliens the key to come into our country. Aren't you? Yes, they they were they were coming over, and how many millions during when Trump was president? Less. That makes no sense, Lars. Three million in one year broke all the records that exist in American history, and we're looking at more than three million this year. Did right. Joe Biden? That is because of COVID. For for two years, they were too scared to come over the border because they were too scared to even. You know, they came over houses. last year during COVID, Scott. I hate to let facts get in the way of a good argument, but I got to do it. It's First Amendment Friday, and you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. These days, you and I both know that the word racism is used as a tool to attack people. It's like the scarlet letter. When somebody says something that you don't like, you just call them a racist, and then they're forced to stay quiet, unless, of course, they've got a backbone and say, no, I don't have to stay quiet. So how can students fight back against schools using racism as sort of the catch-all excuse to censor opinions they don't like? I thought I'd talk to Sahar Tartak, who's a student at Yale University. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for taking the time. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Sahar, you you wrote about this, and you actually wrote for the Wall Street Journal. That's that's quite an accomplishment for a college student. Good for you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So tell me about this. Do you do you run into these claims on campus that somebody says something that another person doesn't like, so they just accuse them of a ra- of being a racist, and then they're silenced? Um, here's what I'll say, based mostly on my experiences in high school, which is what I, of course, shared in the journal. For the most part, people, like on an individual level, are pretty open and tolerant. So when you run into this, it's usually when people have, um, you know, a certain political intention or goal that they want to achieve, and you get in the way and say no. So in the instance of what happened in my, um, in the instance of what happened in my high school, um, as you know, as a member of student government, the story goes, the story is 
that I was told to sign off on a check to bring in a racial equity group to the school to speak about systemic racism. And seeing that I didn't know enough about the presentation, I said, no, please tell me more. And then I was met with those accusations. So you could see here that there are basically a very specific um, intention often comes about. But of course, this can also happen in conversation. Well, and it also means that they weren't just trying to control what you say or what or try to push you in a direction on what you believe. They were trying to control your actions, saying, we need to have you sign that check. And if you don't, we're going to accuse you of being part of systemic racism. Right. So that's basically the idea was that um, the accusation was that my questioning, really my inquiry, and I want, I want to say this because inquiry is an important theme here. I really believe in having a sense of uncertainty and questioning everything that's in front of me. And when you're not allowed to do that, I think there's a problem. And yeah, so more specifically, the accusations um, that, I, that I met were really along the lines of, if you don't see this the way we see it, you're part of the problem. Um, one, specific, one specific question that I got from one of the adults um, at my student government meeting was whether I would also oppose a presentation um, from a Holocaust survivor. And that has really heavy implications, right? So my grandfather yep. was a Holocaust survivor. I'm, I'm familiar with why this is heavy. And what, what's being said is that by you questioning what's in front of you, you're, you're questioning evil. And that's unacceptable, you know, the thing I don't under, you you actually went to a fairly you, you lived in a fairly elite neighborhood of America. It's not unfair to say that, is it? No, not at all. You're from Great Neck, time, New York, which is a which is a nice place to live. It's out on Long Island, isn't it? Yeah, Great Neck is awesome. It's a wonderful school district. And and you went to a great school. And so you would think they would want I mean, I, I'm pleased that somebody your age because I'm a whole lot older than you, would, would say we should all be skeptical. I think there's nothing wrong with skepticism. It's one of the reasons I, I tell my audience, uh, we've done 25 years of saying uh, naysayers go first. So if I stake out a position, somebody calls my producer and says, hey, Lars is completely wrong about this. I say, great, you go to the front of the line. You get to, ch- to challenge him directly. And, and I'm open That's to those awful. challenges because if somebody comes to me with a challenge to my position and says, hey, you're wrong, and here's why, and they make a really good argument, doesn't happen very often, but occasionally they do, um, I'll say, <laughs> wow, maybe I should go back and rethink where I stand on this because it sounds like I might be wrong. That's actually healthy for both sides, isn't it? Sure, certainly. And, yeah, I, w- I will say that that, that that was part of what really was frightening about this situation was that not even my, I didn't even pose an opinion. It was literally the, the questioning itself that was attacked. Yeah, and where do we go if we say, no, you must just accept the conventional wisdom or whatever is being put to you as this is the group position, and therefore if you run counter to the group, the group will do everything it can to, to shut you down, to censor you, to silence you. Right, so I actually I have an answer, the first one being don't do it alone. So a lot of my activism back home was my, my parents were helping me. I had help from the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, or FAIR. Or, um, yeah. So that's, that's very helpful, is to know that you're not alone in this, because it can be really isolating to be attacked. Um, and, yeah, and also just being, being persistent and being brave in our intuitions about inquiry, right? 
there's there's no really heavy risk here. I come again, I come from a family history of thorough oppression. So my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor and my mother escaped revolutionary Iran. Over there it was risky to to say your piece. Here you can be attacked, you can get in trouble, maybe you could even get fired, but it is absolutely worth it. Well, and I, I'd agree with you on that. I do worry, though, about where we're going because I see people who are doing things that I think are perfectly innocent, pregnancy resource centers or you know Christian churches that are pro-life because I happen to be pro-life, and, and they get burned or bombed. And you think, I don't want us to go to places, you know, well, like Iran. I mean, you know, where, where you don't wear a headscarf and you get beaten to death. Uh, you know, or Tiananmen Square, and and you've got your your father's best friend uh, was at the Tiananmen Square massacre, and you say you 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 run against the conventional authority, and you get run over by a tank. That's that's not where I yep. want America to go. But it, sometimes it feels like we're headed that way. Well, it's highly concerning. However, I think that as we continue to keep pushing in the right direction, um, and against this against this really oppressive attitude towards speech, we can, things can work out because most people don't like to see this. And that's really important. People don't like bullying across the aisle. Um, and in standing up against bullying and doing what I consider to be an anti-bullying campaign, you can rack up a lot of support. I think you can. By the way, I've got to ask you, I'm talking to Sahar Tartak, uh, Tartak, who wrote for the Wall Street Journal about this whole issue and about her experience in uh, Great Neck, New York. What are you studying at Yale? Uh, so I'm a freshman, so I'm undeclared, but I'm considering ethics, politics, and economics, which is okay. one major with three sub-majors. <laughs> and, and, and political office after that? Ooh, yeah. Um, running for office sounds really fun. Maybe you should talk to some of the people who've done it, because I think there are probably things about it that can be fun. I think uh, you can find yourself in that same position where you've got uh, people trying to gang up on you. But I wish you well, and thanks for taking a few minutes to to visit with us. And congrats on getting your writing into the Wall Street Journal. Oh, thank you. That's so kind. It is a pleasure to have you on. That's Sahar Tartak, now a student at Yale University, having survived uh, some travails in Great Neck, New York. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show, so tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a Monday. It's a pleasure to be with you, and it's uh, always great to take your calls, too. I'll get to your calls here in just a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that two places, at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. But I want to give you the lay of the land in terms of what is going on in the American economy. Now, we've talked about gas prices. We've talked about inflation. Inflation, uh, both of them are big pieces of bad news. But there's another piece of bad news that, uh, that affects everybody, not just those buying houses, selling houses, uh, those building houses, because house building is a major industry in the United States. And I saw a new detail on this, and I wanted to ask my friend Nick Shivers about that. Nick, of course, is one of the many great supporters of this program with his real estate business. Nick, welcome back. Always a pleasure to be here, good sir. Now, I've not known you to be, you know, just painting a happy face on everything. I mean, you say, yeah, the marketplace has changed and and things aren't uh, going up as fast as as they used to, uh, although it doesn't necessarily mean that prices are going down. But when I saw this report from CNBC, and I actually saw it Friday night, and I thought, I'll ask Nick about this Monday. Americans nationwide are canceling deals to buy homes at the highest rate 
since the start of the COVID pandemic, the share of sales agreements on existing homes canceled in June was just under 15%. That's the highest share since early 2020 when home buying paused immediately, albeit briefly. Cancellations were only 11% a year ago. What should we make of that? Well, Lars, as we have spoke several times, the market is definitely shifting. But the one thing, I mean, those articles, they always, there's a shock. So if you compare 2022 compared to 21 and 20, we, we don't look good. So let's just give you some data numbers. Portland Metro in the month of July, pending sales are down 23%. Clark County's down about 15%. And solds for the month of July are down roughly around 40%. Now, talking about those numbers, that could scare the death out of you. But here's the reality. If you go back, 2020 and 2021 was the historic home sale. Okay, so if we go back, we got to look at 2019. And 2019 isn't as drastic. We're only down about 5% year over year if you compare the last normal real estate market in, in the history of real estate. 2020 and 2021 were not normal, and we couldn't continue at that pace, Lars. Well, and 2019, correct me if I'm wrong, would be notable because it was sort of the peak. Uh, Our economy was going great. We had Trump in office. Gas prices were low. Interest rates were relatively low. A lot of things were going right. So that might have even been a peak of not a peak of home buying, but but it wasn't that anything in the, you know, the rest of the economy was telling you don't buy a house. Things were going great. Uh, until Joe yeah. Biden got got into the Oval Office the following year, I refuse to say elected. He got into office, but the, because you and I know you know where I'm, I'm coming from there. But but that would have been a relatively normal year, but a good normal year where you know unemployment was extraordinarily low, things were going well, and you'd expect people to be buying houses in times like that, right? Right. Well, here's one good news because there is a lot of data that's saying that hey, we, we are going to definitely see this third and fourth quarter a significant slowdown in in the number of properties that are sold. Our inventory is going up, which is good for buyers. But here's here's the good news. The millennial purchasing power, the 20 to 34-year-olds, historically, that is when majority of people buy their first house. That is the biggest population growth in history. And so I do believe a majority of those people have not purchased homes yet. So with, with the amount of construction since 2010 being lower than the 50-year 50, 50 historic norm, we do have a lot of buyers. Now, again, affordability is getting up there, Lars, and depending on where we started at 3.2% at the start of 2022, and we're at like 575 right now. So that really puts a hit on the purchasing power and affordability. See, I'd again dated to to uh, Biden because if I'm not wrong, what weren't rates as low as two point three nine on the day he took office? So if you use that as the benchmark and say, okay, two point three nine, the interest rate has more than doubled since Biden took office, right? And that that had never happened in the history in a one year period ever. Ne- never, never. It, it, interest rates had not doubled in a year over year in history. Now, the other question I've got, since you brought up millennials, I, I'm curious. A lot of people badmouth millennials. There are plenty of good ones. There are some that kind of live right up to their stereotypical reputation. 
but do they want to buy homes? Because I get this sense this is a crowd of people who might be happy renting most of their life. Am I wrong about that? You know, Realtrix.com just did a survey, and it said 68% of millennials said at some point in time they want to buy a home. So the American dream is still there, Lars. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that because the other two effects that people don't, when we're talking about buying houses or, or people who are buying houses or selling houses, they don't often think how this affects everything else. So let me give you two effects and you tell me where it's going to go. If home purchases are down, that means you don't need to build as many houses, although I think the United States is still running behind the curve in terms of supply. But if people aren't buying, that means they're, in most cases, going to keep renting unless they've moved into the uh, decrepit RV on the side of a bad street in a bad neighborhood like the homeless, but that's a small number. So if you have people say, we're going to keep on renting, that puts upward pressure on rents, which, which affects people. If, even if folks out there are saying, well, I'm, I'm not buying a house anytime soon. Why does this affect me? Because you've got to now compete with rentals, uh, for rental space with the people who've decided we're not buying. Interest rates are too high. Prices are too high. So we're going to keep on renting. You're renting in competition with those people. And then you've got the people who build houses who I hope continue to be employed. But I'm worried that if home buying goes down, then home building is going to go is going to follow. Am I uh, tell, hit those two if you wouldn't mind? Yeah, if, if the what we talked about, the Wells Fargo National Association of Home Builders Home Market Index just came out for July, and it's the lowest confidence level since 2012. Wow! Since 2012, we're at a 40 on the West Coast. On a scale of the one to a hundred, they're at a forty-eight. This time last year, eighty-four. So I, I believe that new construction will drastically slow down because of some, the supply chains and the cost to build. So yes, that is going to be an issue. And I do believe that we are going to see an incredible pressure on rentals. And all that means is it's going up. And remember, the cap is with inflation. So rental homes will will continue to go up to to a very dangerous level to where it's going to be very difficult for people to afford to tr- to rent. I mean, I've even talked to my producers about the rents they're paying and it's it's absolutely crazy. Nick, thanks so very much. You want to hit your website real quick? Yep, just any questions, nickshivers.com. That's nickshivers.com. Very good. That's Nick Shivers who is one of the supporters of the program, full disclosure. But we go to him on real estate issues. Coming up in a moment, a good guy with a gun stops a shooting in a mall. I'm going to get into that and the implications of it, especially with all the new crazy gun rules being proposed. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a Wednesday. It's a pleasure to be with you. Our Twitter poll today, should Washington State fix its mandatory reporting law to make priests report sexual abuse? I'll get you details on that in a moment. It's brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. It's a real pleasure to welcome back to the program our friend Aaron the news editor at wweek.com. That's Willamette Week. Aaron, good to have you on. And this is a story that's going to, I think, shock a lot of people. Uh, They're coming into a neighborhood, in this case in the city of Portland, saying you're going to have to pay up to $25,000 each. Homeowners are going to have to pay to get brand new sidewalks because the city wants to build a new skate park. Sophie Peel did the story, and you can find it at wweek.com. But what exactly is going on there? Yeah, you, you've summarized it fairly accurately. So there's a park in East Portland out on 89th Avenue called Barrydale Park. 
and uh, the city of Portland has uh, targeted that park for a series of improvements. Those include a skate park, but also include a bunch of other upgrades. I think there's a new playground. Uh, and uh, the goal is to get the uh, the walkability of that neighborhood up while they're at it. So the, the, the neighborhoods in Montevilla and out in East Portland are notorious for not having sidewalks, even on major thoroughfares. That's a story I think you and I have discussed in the past, and certainly we I've have. written about a lot before. Yep, and I think uh, it works so, largely the same way in many cities, so it's not, it's not something that's just peculiar to Portland. No, it, uh, uh, neglected infrastructure in poorer parts of town is, uh, is I think, a, a problem almost anywhere you go. So the city's trying to rectify this by building sidewalks in the, on the neighborhood streets surrounding this park. On one of these streets on 89th Avenue, Southeast 89th Avenue, 14 homeowners have received notice that they will be billed $24,000 to construct a sidewalk on the yards outside their homes. They have no say in this. It's, not with their, it's without their consent. Uh, and the bill is coming to them whether they like it or not. Now, is it 24000 all at once, or does this get added to their property taxes and, say, build out over a period of time? They can, they can pay it on an installment plan, but even the, the, lar- the most extensive installment plan, a 20-year plan, adds $160 to their monthly property taxes. Wow. Uh, and, and I think that what's really shocking about that is a lot of these people purchased their homes in the 70s and 80s because they're now pensioners on a fixed income. I mean, talk about inflation. Yeah, 160 bucks extra. Now, explain this. Why do the homeowners have to build a city sidewalk? Why isn't the city building the sidewalk? Is there a reason it's getting billed to the homeowners instead of just being a cost of maintaining things the way the city maintains all kinds of things? Well, I want to be careful here as I explain this to not come across like I'm excusing it. I don't think the city's position is terribly defensible. But I do need to give a little context here that sure. in the city of Portland, constructing and repairing sidewalks is the responsibility financially of the property owner. So if you own a home and the sidewalk is in disrepair or is cracking or falling apart, the, both the, the, the cost of that and to some degree the legal risk of that falls on you. So you'd better get that thing patched up. Now, that logic extends to constructing sidewalks to an extent. Like the, the cost of building sidewalks has traditionally been passed on to homeowners. Now, what's unusual about this and what I think is particularly galling about this to these homeowners, many of whom cannot afford to build a sidewalk, is that traditionally, and I'm using the technical jargon here, but there's something called a limited improvement district. But let's just call it a, a lid. For the sake yeah, of they call it a lid. Yeah. yeah. A lid, yeah. So the, the lid says that uh, everyone inside that lid agrees to chip in, and then the city will take care of the construction work. So we all agree that we're going to put in these sidewalks, and we all agree that we're going to build this skate park, et cetera, et cetera. Here's the twist on this one. The city says that because the park itself is the largest piece of property, by far the largest square acreage, that the city therefore owns the majority of the lid and can tell people what they're going to pay, whether they consent or not. Okay, by the, by the way, Aaron, this is this weird thing. Do they call it a triple majority? 
because as I understand, in, in years gone by, and it's been a long time since I covered a story like this, but they, they would say a triple majority. We want a majority of the home of the occupants of the neighborhood, a majority of the property owners, in some cases, if they're rental properties, the owner doesn't even live there. It's the tenant right. uh, who, you know, and, and then there's a third majority, but some of it is based on how much you own. So the city is just saying, we already own the biggest chunk of property, and because we're going to improve our property and we want the sidewalks, we get to tell all of you that you have to pay, and the city doesn't have to pay because the city is not subject to its own taxes or fees, is it? Well, you're absolutely correct up to that last part, which is okay. the city is, in fact, paying for the construction of the park, right? Well, so like, yeah, but uh, not out of not out of their own money. Itself. They're they're paying out of the money of taxpayers, right? Well, of course, yes, absolutely. Well, this is like that old rule that I said, if Aaron and I, if Aaron and I go drinking and it's on his wallet, we're buying Johnny Walker blue. And if it's on my wallet, we're buying Paps blue ribbon. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's a, that's a, that's a very accurate portrayal of the situation. I, I think what's happening here is that these homeowners are discovering that they didn't even get to go out drinking and they're getting the Johnny Walker blue bill. Yeah, they're getting the bill. And by the way, all of that, and I know that as a as a good liberal newspaper, well, we wouldn't mention this, but all this work gets done at prevailing wage, which is artificially 30 to 40% higher than if these homeowners went out and said to a private construction company, build these sidewalks to the same standards as the city, uh, they'd have received a much lower bill that way. But that's not an option either, is it? I think that's, I think you're correct on that. And, and in fairness to my liberal newspaper, I think we've written about the prevailing wage problem adding cost to city of Portland construction on a number of cover stories. I mean, imagine if you could reduce that $25,000 bill, take the part of it that's labor and reduce it by 30 or 40 or 50%. It would make a gigantic difference. But that's where the, when the city says, we'll take care of the construction, yes, at prevailing wage rates, which means you'll get charged through the nose, which you wouldn't get charged if it was a private deal. Do any of these people have an out from this? At this time, no, although city council could vote to reject this plan which is where they're appealing right now. And I think city council should take their considerations pretty seriously. Oh, and by the way, which commissioner is in charge of this? Joanne Hardesty. And she's so popular. What's she pulling in the polls now? 25% for re-election in less than two weeks? Uh, the polling that I've, that I've seen is so unreliable. I, I, I'm not saying this because I'm trying to, like, press back on you politically or ideologically. <laughs> I'm saying this because every time every time I see a poll for the city of Portland, it ends up being so spectacularly wrong that I'm embarrassed two weeks later. So well, I don't want to be caught on fair. the air like saying, I think she's going to lose because the polling sucks. Well, but the polling does match Joanne Hardesty in one regard. If the polling is unreliable, the only thing more unreliable than the polling is probably Joanne Hardesty. Now, I know you can't say that or even agree to it, but I certainly can. Uh, but maybe people should uh, take out their ire on Joanne Hardesty. And, and, and this is a little you know, different than... You have than, the last word on this one. Well, and, and, that, and that's fine. At least this is different than the road construction piece where I've heard about people who have neighborhoods and no streets. And I go, well, the contractor who built your house should have built the streets because that's the requirement that they put on all other contractors. So other homeowners have already paid. But when the city says, we want to build a skate park, you're going to pay for that and you're going to pay for new sidewalks, whether you want them or not. I hope Joanne Hardesty has to answer that hard question. That's Aaron Mesh. He is the news editor at wweek.com. Uh, you can find them and their story, the Sophie Peel story there. Coming up in a moment. 
I got to talk about Jim Gossett, our parody guy, has a new offering about John Fetterman of Pennsylvania. And we'll talk about a measure to put universal health care in the Constitution of the state of Oregon. That's Measure 111. It is so bad that even former governor and medical doctor John Kitzhopper says vote no on Measure 111. I'll give you details and I'll get to your calls in just a moment. 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's the Radio Northwest Network and I'm glad to be with you. I've kind of neglected callers, so if you want to jump in, it's 866-HEY-LARS. Let's go first to Sue in Bellingham, listening on the network, of course, and on KGMI. Susan, uh, what's on your mind today? Well, I'm wondering why, and I, I'll step back a second. I appreciate that you are honoring teachers with enough respect to think that we have made a difference in the classroom, because I think I do. I'm a teacher. I've been for you decades. Do, you do make a difference. But, but there is something that I have no power over and which makes the most difference. And that's the big lobby that sells us the tests and sells us the curriculum. And they run the schools. And depending on the principal, depending on the supervisor, we teachers are judged by how well we teach the curriculum that we have no control over. So I really grinds my teeth to hear us judge again <laughs> over something that we don't have any say. Susan, can I, I you, you'll promise not to dislike me at the end of this conversation? I will try. You okay. do a great job. I love I, I, well, you. I happen I, to be on break. I learned so much from you. You're so, very yeah, sweet. <laughs> thank, thank, what would happen to your, your, what would your tenure be like if you put the Lars Larson show on for a half an hour for your class every day? Let me ask you some serious mm, questions, yeah. though. Are many of the creators of the curriculum former teachers? No, I have no idea what's driving them. It doesn't matter to me. No, no, but it, but what I'm saying is, of what we're saying, I, I get that. I'll get to that in a moment about who picks it. Okay. I would just point out that over the years, I've covered so many cases where teachers, for good or ill, you know, sometimes it's a good idea, sometimes not. Math teachers will say, "Hey, we've got a new way of teaching math," and they sell the idea. And if it uh -huh. sells for big, they make big money. Okay, the, and I've seen individual pairs of teachers do this with history, with uh -huh. a bunch of things. So a lot of it comes from teachers. Now. Who makes the decision? Well, State Department of Education and the local school board to some extent, depending on the state. So when you talk about the local school board, who decides whether somebody is going to, uh, there's one answer, I think, to this. Who decides who's going to sit on a school board and at the Department of Education? It's bigger than them, Lars. This is a nationwide drive. When they did the No Child Left Behind, and it suddenly became imperative that every child be tested all the way down through the grades, it changed education. It changed the focus of education. I understand and that. But, but it came well, from the Department of... But didn't it come from the Department of Education, created by, if I remember right, Jimmy Carter, uh, a Democrat, and that the unions and the Democrats pushed this stuff, and they are... they. I'll give you one more short question, and you tell me, because I think I know the answer, what is the single most power... Of, of all the labor unions, which are the most powerful political force in America... Not industry, but labor unions. Which one is the most powerful labor union in America? And listening to your show, I know what the answer you give is because Do I haven't done any research on it at all. It's the I, teachers' I, union, right? So, well, so well, you know, you would think that it was, but I sat there with a supervisor, a uh, um, superintendent, who decided that every child in our district must be on the same page of the same book every day. 
and when I, he was trying to get rid of all the older teachers, and, and he managed one way or another. And I sat there with the union representative and listened to him say that he was going to pull me from the classroom because I had taught with a puppet on the wrong day, and I had my class write on postcards instead of binder paper, and you know, said to me, there's nothing you can do. The guy sounds He's like a martinet. He, he sounds oh, he, he like totally a, was, a little I'm dictator. but He was, but I'm saying that that's what this leads to, is trying to follow a curriculum. We can't say the teachers do it. The teachers and the teachers' union have no control over this. It's bigger than we are. It's huge commercial success that's driving it. I, I would bet, but hold I on. I would bet. I would it. bet. Right now, we've got fights going on in all the almost all the major cities. Do we go back to school or not? And the biggest single player in the do we go back to school or not is the teachers' unions. And the CDC, when it was writing guidelines for p- pandemic, it actually took its direction from the NEA and the other one, the other national one. Uh, I'm trying to remember what it's called. There's National Education Association. The CDC literally took word for word from the union. What th- These are medical, scientific folks, allegedly, and they were taking their direction from the teacher. I'll bet if a teacher's union, because teacher's unions say, we want the class periods to be this long. And if they want it, to some extent, every school board member there knows if you cross the teachers' union, you will probably not be on the school, almost certainly won't be on the school board next year, and they'll replace you with somebody who will do their bidding. So if the union wanted something, if they said, we don't want this kind of curriculum, I think the national and state teachers' unions could stop it. And if they wanted something in the classroom, they could say, we need this, and they would get it because the teachers' unions are hugely powerful. They choose the school boards, the school boards choose the superintendent, and the superintendent chooses the policy. So who's driving the car? The, the well, members sure of the union that, that, that calls the shots. I sure hope those unions are listening to you, because I will tell you that during the pandemic, when I heard of teachers not wanting to teach, I, my jaw dropped, and I couldn't believe it, and I still can't believe it. And, and did the yeah. union say, you're a union member, when you, you will show up for the work, job and work? Or did they go in and actually argue, we shouldn't reopen schools, and the unions, to a large extent, were successful? So the proof, I guess, of my, of my thesis is that when the teachers' union said the L.A. public schools are not going to open, they didn't open. And, and when the teachers' union said, we want this, so if they wanted to stop critical race theory and all that, you know what, I'm up against the break, but Susan, it's a great conversation. You are welcome to call anytime you like. And I would even come and talk to your class, come up to Bellingham and talk to your I class. Teach, but that I, would, huh? I teach in a private school now, so well, you'll have see, to find me in the private sector. I, I'll tell you what, I would love to do that. Thank you for the call. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You could sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com. View the videos and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com.